Listen to the words long written down When the man comes around Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers One hundred million angels singing Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum Good morning to you. I'm glad you're here this Memorial Day weekend and that's beautiful weather and we enjoyed a barbecue yesterday and had a great time in our small group and uh, had someone who had never come before and they uh, spent three and a half hours with us and had a great time. My name is Jonathan Morgan. I'm, I guess, one of the pastors here since I've been a pastor for a long time and, and they occasionally let me preach and um, I enjoy doing so. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John, the third chapter. We're speaking about Nicodemus today. And, um, you know, the Lord knows each one of us better than we know ourselves. So I like to think that uh, when Jesus went to speak with Nicodemus, he could look right into his eyes and with all sincerity and, uh, and love, be like one of his best friends, even though they weren't on that kind of relationship. But you know, when you're in a relationship, you have, a, you have some personal things and you call each other names that uh, other people don't get to. And, and we'll talk about that in a, in a little while. There was a pastor who was riding on an airplane and in the process of riding on this airplane, he got to talking to one of the young ladies that was by him. And they were engaged in conversation for a period of time and then they naturally, the, the conversation got towards spiritual things and he asked the young lady, he said to her, when you die, do you think you'll go to heaven? And she said, oh yes, I think so. And he goes, that's wonderful, tell me about that. She said, well, you know, um, I've cut down on smoking two, two packs of cigarettes a week to one. She said, I, I've cut back way back on my drinking. I pay all my taxes in my income uh, form. And I made my boyfriend, before he moved in, get tested for the STDs. <laughs> and then she went on and named some other things. Now we laugh at that, but I found that everybody has their list. Everybody has a list. I talked to uh, some guys down at the racket club where I play tennis and uh, some older people, and I asked them, uh, you know, if you were to die today, do you know if you'd go to heaven? And well, yeah, I think so, usually people say. Very rarely do people say, yes, I know for sure. And uh, they say, I think so, and some say, well, I hope so. And uh, he has his own rules. And I thought, wow, he has his set, everybody has a set of rules that they go by. So I asked him when he finished telling me about his experiences and whatnot, I said, so you're going to get to heaven based on your criteria and not God's. He said, well, I said, well, isn't that what you're saying? All these things you've done and haven't done, that's your criteria for getting into heaven. Wouldn't you like to know what Jesus says about that? He didn't want to know. <laughs> He's a good friend, and we play tennis together, but he didn't want to know. 
Well, we all have lists. We have different roles to play. I mean, we wear different hats. Sometime in life, we're a father or a husband or a worker or coach or wife or mother or um, have an outside job, maybe a chauffeur and a number of other chores and obligations that come our way. But all of us by nature are religious. We're all going to end up worshiping something, something. We all want to find fulfillment and peace and real happiness and joy. Something deep within us longs for that. Is there something that's real? What's really real? What really brings fulfillment? What really brings joy? Man's always looking at the external. And you see that when you talk to people about how do you know you're going to go to heaven? And they list do's and don'ts all the time. You know, I like to sometimes I lightly, facetiously say to them, well, what's your pastor's name? And they say, um, well, we have a lot of pastors. I say, that's wonderful. Tell me one of their names. Uh, well, <laughs> that tells you a lot. <laughs> but we have all these things that we uh, adhere to, and we think, if I do this, this is good. If I don't do that, you know. And, and God's up there weighing all of this like this, and the tip scales one way or another, depending on how many good deeds I do and how many bad things I don't, I mean, I, <laughs> I don't do. And, and, and there's a scale somehow. And eventually, if the good outweighs the bad, I'll make it in. That's what a lot of people think today. Ask them, and you'll just find that they'll tell you about all the things they do and don't. Nicodemus was like this, but I mean hardcore. We'll look at it today. The problem is, 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, if you go into, and you, all of us have attended, attended funerals, and they dress the person up, I mean, whether it's a beautiful dress or whatever it is, and they get them all fixed up, and there's flowers and this and that, and the guy's in a nice suit and t coat and tie and everything, and they, they just look great. But if you talk to the corpse, it never talks back. Simply. Simple as dead. No communication. Nicodemus was dead spiritually. So Jesus has words for him. They speak right to him. In our day, <clears throat> today's world, it's full of confusion. People are frustrated and miserable and looking for hope and looking for real love and trying to find some fulfillment in life. And man tries about everything he can think of, and he can't find the right formula. Nicodemus was a man just like that. I mean, he was meticulous, as I will share with you in a moment. His name in the Greek means conquered, of a conqueror of the people. He was confused by religion. If Judaism had an office like that of the Pope, he would be the top candidate. I mean, this guy just tried like you couldn't believe. Observing his encounter with Jesus, we found out three things that he possessed, some qualifications that made him an outstanding individual. He was very impressive as a religious man. Number one, the Bible tells us in verse one, if you'll look there with me, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Pharisee means separated one. 
Many trace their roots back to Daniel and his three friends who refused to partake of the king's food and, and refused to bow down to him while they were in exile in Babylon. These men clung to the law by uh, means of preserving their identity in a far distant land. But um, the reason that they clung to the law such as they did and the reason the Pharisees did is because every time the people went away from the law, they went into captivity. And so finally, out of that captivity in Babylon, they came to the place where they got serious about the law. And boy, did they get serious, much too serious about the law. And after 600 years of nationalism and devotion to the law, the law kind of took on a life of its own. It began to dictate everything to the minutia of degrees. The Pharisees became a tight-knit Brotherhood, a political and religious party that had earned the respect of fellow Jews. They were meticulous expositors of Scripture. They worked tirelessly to apply the general principles of the law to everyday life. These people were serious people. They had the Torah, which was the first five books of Moses. Many of them had memorized whole books, could say the whole book. Some of them memorized all five books. Studying, studying, and studying. Then they had the Talmud, which is a compilation of understanding the Torah, first five, and they added additional 613 rules to that. And then, uh, then they had statutes and precepts they had to follow, and, and there was thousands of rules after a while that they meticulously tried to follow. Nicodemus was a huge rule keeper. But he recognized when he saw Jesus' life something. Wow, oh, this guy's different. What is it about him? And he desperately wanted to know what was Jesus' secret. I mean, Jesus had fun. Jesus huddled around the wrong people in his mind. And he helped people at every turn. In fact, one of the scriptures says Jesus went from town to town doing good, healing people, and all of these things that he did. But to to the Pharisees, everything was external. The Pharisees were so earnest about their faith that on the Sabbath day, they wouldn't carry no more than a, the weight of a dried fig or no more food that could be swallowed in one gulp lest they break the Sabbath rest and they had worked on Sunday, therefore they defiled it. That's how minutia they got to the, determining all the things that they needed to do. Serious examiners. I'm going to give you a few things about how ridiculous that came. But the point is, they were serious about keeping the Sabbath. They wanted it to be a time of rest, relaxation, and thinking about God and getting themselves ready for the following day. Sadly, in our generation, people spend most of their Sundays and they're worn out by Monday and they can't wait to Monday night so they can finally get some rest because they're worn out from the weekend. We've lost that in America. It used to be, you know, when I, I came from the South, and uh, used to be all the closed, stores were closed on Sunday. You couldn't buy anything. Except the basic, some just basic things that were opened because they wanted to honor the Sabbath day or the Sunday. But things got ridiculous for the Pharisees. For example, the law stated that every Israelite had to take the Sabbath day and make it a day of rest and concentrate, but all these extra, a list of specific prohibitions came about by the Pharisees. And they developed a document called the Mishnah. It contained 24 chapters just on how to keep the Sabbath day. 
24 chapters. Listen to some of these things that are ridiculous. It was determined that on the Sabbath, one could not tie a knot in a rope because you worked. Ah, uh, but your wife could tie a knot in her sash. And if you went outside to get a drink of water and then to put the bucket down into the well, but you hadn't tied that knot the night before onto the bucket, guess what? You sinned, you worked on the Sabbath, but if you could go and get your wife's sash, you could tie a knot in the sash. And if it would hold a little bit of water, you could dip and down and get some water out. That's how ridiculous it got. Well, that's nothing yet. You couldn't add water to a vase of flowers. You couldn't make a bouquet of flowers. You couldn't remove a rotten piece of fruit in the rest of the fruit on the Sabbath. You couldn't brush dried mud from the boots or clothes. You certainly couldn't cut your hair or trim your nails on the Sabbath. Now get this. If a man died on the Sabbath and he had both eyes open, you could not close his eyes because you worked on the Sabbath. Ah, ah, ah. But if he died with one eye open, the righteous thing to do was close the other eye. <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous? 24 chapters of that. All that knowledge puffed them up because they tried to do all that stuff and most people probably didn't know all that, but you know, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Well, they were, they were tedious laws and certainly burdensome. But he was not only a Pharisee, <coughs> Pharisee <coughs> but he was a ruler of the Jews. <coughs> By the way, you can understand why Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. They were all about externals. All about these little minutiae detail. Now, the idea behind it was really good. I'm going to do the least amount of work I can so I can rest and reflect on the Lord and get ready for the next day. But what it turned into was something was burdensome and just killed the average person. Well, he was secondly, he not only was a Pharisee, but he was a ruler of the, of the Jews, and he was a men, men, uh, member of the Sanhedrin, a group of 70 men who gave counsel to the high priest, and they had jurisdiction over every Jew on earth and served as Israel's supreme court. He was devoutly religious, and he was a religious leader of religious men. He was top dog. Get this in verse 10. It says that he was the teacher of Israel. John uses the definite, definite article indicating that Nicodemus was, in Jesus' opinion, the most regarded of the voices of the teaching profession. In all of Israel, he was the teacher of the Jews, maybe the greatest teacher in Jerusalem. He was educated. He was an aristocrat. He, he had earnestness. He had drive. He had position. He had training. He was nobody's fool. This guy was sharp. But he knew he was missing something. You know, you can get all the education, and I'm not against education, that's good. But ed education won't solve the problem of the heart. I mean, we're, we're so much ahead of generations past as far as what knowledge is and what we know today. But look at the country falling apart. Why? The heart's the problem. Desperately wicked, the Bible says. 
A man's looking for an answer, but he looks in all the wrong places. For sure, no one could rival a Pharisee, especially this Pharisee, at being religious. I mean, he was religious to the core. The teacher of, of the Jews. Now, the fact that Nicodemus comes by at night, he uh, <laughs> skirts his way down probably down the dark parts of the street, you know, and he's hiding as he goes because no Pharisee is going to be seen with Jesus, indicates that probably he uh, maybe might have been coming to negotiate on some others. Maybe he was coming to on a diplomatic mission and he didn't want to be seen. Or maybe he was coming just for personal reasons. He just had to know. Just had to know. Because he, he, knows, he knew so much about the law, but his life and Jesus' life were so contrary, so contrary that it was, my goodness, they, they were just like night and day. But Jesus was doing these incredible things. The Jewish people were expecting a, uh, a, the Messiah to be a military commander, to be a political ruler, to be one who would transform Israel into a dominant world power again and an economic power. And he comes with this opening salvo and he says, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know you're a teacher come from God because no one can do these things unless God be with him. Now, I'm going to give you a loose translation we'd say today. Dude, man, you're just blowing us away. What is it that you got and we don't have? Because nobody could do what you're doing unless God be with him. It's really what he's saying. I mean, he's like, he knew all the law to the nth degree. He could probably quote chapters. He was the teacher of Jerusalem, of Israel. The man had it all together, but something was missing. And he recognized something in Jesus. I love it. Jesus shoots straight to the heart and addresses the real problem. No chit-chat, no idle words. Illegalists are hard. A switch won't do for them, you know. Yeah, you can't get them lying that way. You need a hammer and a chisel. I like the way one commentator said, you need a club <laughs> to get their attention. Truly, Jesus said, truly I say unto you, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was probably thinking, what in the world is he talking about? They wanted a kingdom. They wanted to throw off the yoke of Rome. Uh, they had no way of doing so. And here comes this one who's amazingly popular. And he's, uh, Nicodemus is a religious to the fingertips. And he, maybe, I don't know, we not told, maybe he wanted to, to attach his, his little wagon to the star and then he, he could ride on the, the excess of Jesus. Who knows? But Jesus tells him that he cannot see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Jesus is adding a new requirement. This word here, uh, the, in the text, again, born again. This word, again, some commentators go into great length about this word, but I'm going to be brief today. The Greek word translated again has several meanings, but the most common meaning for the word is to be born from above or from above. So in other words, to be born again or to be born from above. Translates that a person so he's able to enter another world and adapt to its conditions. So... To belong to this kingdom, one must be born into it. 
Well, that's, that's mind-blowing to Nicodemus. Here's the big problem. We cannot be born of it on our own. You can't. Verses 4 and 5 are real clear, if you'll look with me in the text there. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be, and be born? Can he? And Jesus answers him and says, truly I say unto you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The mask is going to come off here. Don't forget that Nicodemus is no imbecile. He's smart. He's sitting across from Jesus. He's a brilliant theologian. He's skilled in the art of debate. He's addressing a young upstart from Galilee. But he recognizes something's different in Jesus. A little side note. I think that people ought to recognize the difference in Christians. Not in a bad way. <laughs> we got enough of bad examples, but in a good way. By your demeanor, by how you say what you say, the smile on your face, the reactions that you have, the love that you give off, all of these things. I, I just believe that Christians have a vital impact and they, they just realize how much they did when they went into the workplace. They could go into the workplace with confidence that God walks with you. Amen. He walks with you. Nicodemus, how can this be? How can, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? But Jesus is saying to him, you must be born into it. By our own birth is not something we can consider ourselves. We cannot conceive ourselves and we cannot become ready for a birth on our own. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to the spiritual life. And Nicodemus is confronted with this truth. Now notice in here, Nicodemus didn't come to argue. That's a wonderful thing. If you ever had to, <laughs> I won't say the privilege or the opportunity to talk to someone, all we want to do is argue. That's all they want to do. You can hardly get anywhere because they just argue one thing after another after another. Nicodemus comes and he wants to learn. I like the way uh, Max Lucado says, he says, uh, Nicodemus, about Nicodemus, he says, you can't help the blind by turning up the light. You can't help with deaf men by turning up the music. You can't change the inside of a person by decorating the outside. And you cannot grow fruit without a seed. Love that. Nicodemus, you must be born again. He's shocked. What is he talking about? I mean, this guy's smart. Here's two philosophies colliding together. One of salvation, and these are on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Nicodemus thought the word, that the person did all the work, hence all the rules and the regulations you had to keep. And Jesus saying that the salvation comes by God's work. Nicodemus thought, if I work diligently, I press hard, then I'm saved, I'm cherished by God, and that he will honor me into the day when I meet him. And Jesus is saying salvation is a gift. It comes from God, and it's man's job to receive it. We sing the song, for by grace are you saved through faith, and what? Not that of yourselves. It is a gift, it is a gift, it is a gift, not of works, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
You can't work your way up. You can't get degrees to get there. You can't get smart enough. You can't make enough money. You can't get any of those things. Salvation doesn't come by the external. It comes by something that God does within us. Verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say unto you, you must be born again. Well, God doesn't intend to change the carnal nature. Not that, I'm not talking about the flesh here. I'm talking about the fleshly nature of man, the old nature. That cannot change. The old nature is at war with God. They that are their flesh cannot please God. God has no program for changing our old nature to reprieve it or improve upon it or develop it or save it. That old nature is going to go down with us to the grave. But one day we'll be changed in the twinkling of eye. Won't that be great? Whew, won't that be great? The older they get, the more I like that. <laughs> the more aches and pains you begin to feel and hair falls out and it turns gray, teeth fall out, you know, and you try to bend over and you hurt and you can try to get up and you hurt and one day we'll all be changed. You'll get a new body. Boy, won't that be wonderful? And God will take that sin nature and it'll be no longer dominant. Can no longer dominate. We won't have to deal with it. He'll get rid of that old nature. But the old nature will never be obedient to God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. God wants to give man a new nature. He wants to engraft into us in part to give to us something that we cannot earn. Verses 7 and 8, it says, Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. And he goes on to say that the wind blows and you see the, the wind blowing and, and it's coming. You don't know where it's coming or going and, and there's a lot of things that we don't understand about the wind. And, and the air currents and the winds are something that we still can't control. And we see the effects of wind and what it does, but we don't quite understand it. But that's, in a sense, Jesus is saying that's the way the Spirit moves. The Spirit moves where He wants, where He wants to move. Sometimes the wind of the Spirit's a raging power. Other times it's gentle. I love the way one commentator said it, it is as gentle so you can see it almost imperceptibly move a leaf. Gentle. Imagine the spirit just oh, roaring all around Nicodemus as he's like, wow, what in the world is going, what is he talking about? All he knew was rules and regulations. Listen, is the wind of the spirit moving in your life? He is. And if you're listening to him, oh, he's moving and he's talking to you, and you can hear him. It's a wonderful thing. Perhaps it's gently blowing, soothing your soul this morning. For someone else, the choices, he's affirming the choices that you've made. For somebody else, either in this room or on the podcast, he's saying, you must be born again. It can't come from you. You have to take me, and I will change you. But I'll take you where you are, and I'll make you become like me if you'll open your heart to me. Perhaps you're like Nicodemus. You're looking and you're longing, and you're longing for some real joy, 
some real peace in the midst of all kinds of conflict, you can find him. Why don't you yield your life to him now? You can do it today. Boy, you think Nicodemus was intrigued? <laughs> Man, he was just, Jesus was just blowing him away. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him shall not be disappointed. Because I believe something's true, and I confess it with my mouth, God will do something incredible as I give my life to him. You're making, you know, in baseball and football, you hear all of these great exchanges, you know. Did you hear who got the, the Reds got on their team, man? They changed this guy for that guy. But you hear about the, the 49ers, man, the 49ers got this quarterback, man, what a great change, the deal they got, you know. You know, greatest exchange ever. God took all your sin, took all of my sin, and then took it upon himself and gave us his very righteousness. You get a better exchange than that? <laughs> and that's for all eternity, by the way. Wow. Unless one is born from above through the cleansing work of the Spirit, as he receives Christ within, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, you think Nicodemus hearing this for the first time, he's like, but the Spirit of God is just raging all around him, just all over him. In the late 1900s, Christianity stated that according to the Gallup poll, 39.5 million Americans claim to have asked Christ to be their savior and that one in five adults 18 years or older in the United States was evangelical. Now, if those statistics were true then, then why did the sinful pace of our country not slow down? If so, why is pornography still here and still raging? Why is the national and corporate immorality still epidemic? Why are we borrowing millions and millions and billions and into the trillions of dollars to keep our nation afloat? Well, one of the reasons is because there's an incredible ignorance in the church today. I find people, even in the church where I pastored for 26 years, I, I, I was astounded sometimes how little they knew and I thought, how can that be? This same Gallup poll indicated that those who claimed to be angelicals, three out of 10 said that the devil was not a personal being. It's like a metaphor or something. Only six of 10 could identify you must be born again as the words that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. Now these are people over 18 years of age and they should know some things. There's another reason. Many people who claim to be born again know nothing about repentance. They'll like the, 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 the Israelites used to do. They would just add, they had, you know, here's Jehovah God. Well, they'd go to another country. They'd just add on some more gods. So now they had this God and they had that God. And then depending on the circumstance, they'd go to one and go to the other. And that's a number of people do that. They think they just add God onto a list. Oh, but a God is a jealous God. <laughs> he created us. He wants us. He wants us for himself because he knows best for us. 
According to Jesus' definition, there are thousands of people who claim to be born again, and they're really not. Why? Because Scripture teaches us there's no rebirth without repentance. I turn for this, and I turn to him. I've been trying to do my own way, and it's not working, and I turn to him, and I give him control of my life. That's what repentance is all about. It's turning around and going a different direction. Repentance involves a change of mind that leads to a change of action. He places his nature within us to help us to become like him because imagine if he saved us from our sins and said, all your sins are washed away, now you're on your own. See what you can do. Well, we go right back to the pig pen. No help, but God so graciously gives himself to help us become what we could not. Try as we may, we could not and cannot without the Spirit of God working in our life. It's great what God teaches us along the way. He changes the way we think, the way we react, the way we speak, the way we dress. God helps us all along the way. I got a call from Dan, uh, Don Van Sickle this week, and he gave me a quote that I'm going to share with you. It's a beautiful quote. Fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. Joy-based repentance makes us hate sin. Let me say it again. It comes from Tim Keller. Fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves, but joy-based repentance makes us hate the sin. Oh. Yeah. Jesus doesn't want us to feel self-hatred. He wants us to learn how to hate sin and turn to him. And he comes to help us. Legalism is a dark world. Maybe you don't know that. But legalism is slow torture, suffocation of the spirit. It crushes one's dreams. You got just enough of religion to keep you, but not enough to nourish you. In reality, Nikki's hurting. That's why he's there. His diet consists of rules and regulations and standards. <laughs> no vitamins, no taste, no zest, just bland, predictable religion. Legalism doesn't need God. Legalism is a search for promotion, not forgiveness. It's a process of defending self, explaining self, exalting self, and justifying self. Legalists are obsessed with self, not God. It can turn my opinion into your burden. I mean, after all, there's only one room for one opinion, and guess whose opinion is wrong? <laughs> Nicodemus knew how to march through the drumbeat of the law, but he didn't know how to sing for joy. He didn't know anything about that. He didn't have joy. Legalism puts the fear of man into you. He makes you approval hungry. If you say the right thing and do the right thing and, and be with the right people, then guess what? You do whatever it takes to please them. Conformity is safe, but it's no fun. No fun. Verse 11 and 12, truly I say unto you, we speak that which we know and we testify what we've seen. And you do not accept our authority. If I told you earthly things, you do not believe. How will we believe if I tell you earthly things? Now Nicodemus is trying. He doesn't object to Jesus to him outright, but he's 
trying to understand the message, but listen as Jesus said, verse 10, you do not understand. Verse 11, he says, you do not accept. In verse 12, he says, how will you believe? He's challenges in his thinking. Remember, he's just seeped into the law. That's all he knows. It's all he's been dedicated to, and he's been dedicated. Jesus challenges him first this way. Jesus knew that spiritual matters would be foreign to the minds of those who were in charge of the religious um, teachings of the day. But if the shepherd is blind, then what happens to the flock? They're doomed. Secondly, it's a real struggle for Nicodemus and the people he represented was their refusal to affirm the truth of eyewitness testimony. In the ancient world, the collaborating testimony of multiple witnesses was paramount. It was great evidence. And they rejected his testimony. They rejected the testimonies of the people that were around him and that their lives were changed. Thirdly, Jesus acknowledged that spiritual realities are more difficult to believe than truth that you can perceive with your senses. So how are you going to believe? And we give the illusion to the wind. And then, wow, Nicodemus is like, can you see a guy that's just perplexed, but the Spirit of God is just working all over him? And he wants to know, and he's, he's seeking to know, and he's, he's just, it, it, it's like he's, well, he's blind. And, and the Spirit is just pulling the blinders off. And finally, Jesus claimed to be, be an eyewitness to heavenly truth, having seen, what, seen with his physical eyes what others could not see. Not only can God come to earth as a man, but he did come to earth as a man. Look at verse 13. Jesus refers to himself, the one who descended from heaven. My authority comes because I came from heaven. That is why Jesus frequently referred to himself as son of man, which is particularly meaningful in the roots of the Jewish history. John uses the term 13 times since his gospel. It's always about the deity of Christ and him being the sole Messiah. Look at verses 14 and 15. And where it'll be finished, when we sum up these two verses. Now, Jesus uses something he's really familiar with, Old Testament. Jesus sends Nicodemus back to an Old Testament familiar passage. It's a picture, really, of horror and glory at the same time. Let's take a look at it in, the, in, the, in your text here, in verse 14 and 15. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent... In the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whatever, whoever believes we will have him and will have eternal life. Now, this is a great illustration because, boy, Nick, this would really, Nick, Nicodemus would really identify with this because he understood his, uh, the, the disbelief and the um, apostasy of the Jewish people. How they always seemed to walk away from God and they couldn't believe as even as God told them. They were so rebellious. But as the snakes bit the people in the desert, the serpent was a perfect example of sin because it's a serpent that tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, thereby bringing sin into the world. That our very nature was polluted when the, sin, the, the serpent enticed them to sin, and they chose to do so. Remember, Paul said, there's none righteous, no, not one, since the very inception, Adam and Eve sinned. 
Then we see the likeness of a serpent being lifted up on a pole. Our Lord became sin. Here was the remedy for them. Took the pole and they were being bitten by these serpents. And as they were being bitten and they were crying out in pain and, and they were going to die. And, and God, uh, Moses went and he interceded with the people and he, and he talked to the Lord and the Lord said, well, build a bronze serpent, put it up on the end of the pole. And if they will look to that snake, the poison will be minimized and become ineffective and they will be saved. And Jesus is alluding to this as he speaks to them. Well, he becomes sin. Wow. Romans 8, 3 says, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3, 13, by becoming the curse for us. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then one I love so much, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He knew no sin, but became sin, that he might impart his righteousness to us. How wonderful is that? Talk about a gift. Man. Boy. You knew Nicodemus's man. Wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall sitting and listening to that conversation? We just get a little piece of it here, you know. Wouldn't you like to listen to that? And he explained that. God had to dis, uh, discipline his disbelieving, disobedient uh, children. He does so when he teaches them a lesson along with it. But he just promises them as the, if they will look to the snake, the venom would lose its effectiveness. Today, Jesus being lifted up, if you look to him, the poison of sin will be ineffective in your life. Isn't that wonderful? Nicodemus could understand that. He could understand that. When we acknowledge our sin, take complete responsibility for our guilt, and come to the Lord for healing, the poison of evil loses its power to kill. What a wonderful statement. Loses its power as we walk with him. Well, Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Being born again is a radical change that takes place in a person's life when he sees he can do nothing to merit his rescue from himself. See, the biggest problem is not your neighbor. It's not the person sitting next to you. It's not your children and it's not your spouse. And it's, we whittle it down to it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Amen. It's me. I need help. I need help. Once a person has been saved, rescued from himself, if he will diligently spend time in Jesus' presence on a regular basis, the Spirit of God will draw him and compel him to make changes in his life. That's why the scripture is so paramount. Hebrews 2.1 says, Desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Without, without the word and the study of the word and contemplation of the word and letting the Spirit of God take the word and make it come alive, there's very, very little growth that's ever going to occur. 
Scripture is paramount because he instructs us and teaches us and guides us and convicts us and comforts us through the word. Religion is, is all versus regeneration. That's what's taking place. One sitting, two sittings talking to each other. Regeneration occurs through faith. Regeneration is a change of mind that leads to a change of conduct. Religion is about rules and, and laws. And religion tends, uh, likes to pretend that God is loving and kind, but we secretly think that God really wants to punish us. He's looking for a reason to punish us for the bad that we do. And yes, it's true that a holy God must punish sin in accordance to justice, but he does not delight in destroying what he's created and crafted with such great care. He's the author of life not the cause of destruction. He loves us. I would have loved to see how Jesus looked at him. Here's a man who's been trying hard all of his life. And Jesus could look at him and say, Nicodemus, I love you. But as Paul said, the Jews were trying hard, but not according to knowledge. They didn't know what they were doing. Did Nicodemus change? Oh, well, we find out that when they had the trial, that Nicodemus stood up for Jesus. And that when the time for the, taking Jesus from the cross, that he and Joseph of, Ar, he and Joseph of Arimathea went to take the body of Christ and take it down and put it in the grave. We think he did. Seems like he did. There's great hope that he made the change. Let me leave you some points and we'll close today. Nicodemus did not realize that he was dead spiritually. Do you realize a lot of people don't realize that? They don't. That he was separated from God. He was blinded to God's ways. He was unable to communicate with God. Eternally separated from him because of his sinful nature. He would have never, never agreed with that. He had the law. Secondly, without the cross, without Christ being lifted up and men's de total dependence on him, there is no salvation. There is no way to be rescued from ourselves. If we would have changed ourselves on our own, if we could have done it on our own, we would have done it. But man tries everything in the world to get it done and can't do it. Thirdly, God rescues us from ourselves, apart from anything we do or anything that we say until we come to him and we ask him to forgive us for our sins and be the boss. That's what I like to say. They said in those days, Lord, he wants to be your boss. He wants to call the shots. You see, mental assent is not enough. It's not enough to know some facts. A lot of people know facts about God. A lot of no people know facts about Jesus, but Jesus said these words, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. It's not going to happen any other way. I am the way. I am your life. <laughs> I am your life. Come to me. Uh, fourth, we see, no matter how far you are away from God, He will save you from yourself. No matter how far away you are, I don't care what you've done or what you said or how many times you've been married or divorced 
or what your drug past has been, whether you spend time in prison, it does not matter to God. No matter how far you are away, you can come to him and he'll begin a process of making you become like him. And finally, he gives you his righteousness to you to help you to produce righteous living because we can't produce it on our own. Isn't it nice to know that your salvation doesn't hinge on what you did this past week or you didn't do this past week? Praise God. He certainly had a better plan, didn't he? Man, yes, he did. If you're without Christ today, oh, you can make him Christ today. This is Memorial Weekend, and we're talking about freedom. You want to be free from your past? He can take it away. You want to be, you want to be free from the sins that just so weight you down? You can be. If you want to find joy, you can find joy in him. Because of what he did, not what we do. Salvation's all about that. You can come to him today. Maybe you're not involved in the body of Christ. I don't understand how Christians cannot be. I mean, the Bible has alluded hundreds of times to the, the, the members were all members of one another, were members of the body. The hands that said, well, I don't need you. Well, the head over there doesn't function very well. You know, you can put it on some artificial things and whatnot, but it doesn't function well apart from the body. The, the foot doesn't function very well apart from the body. God designed you to be in a body to help one another grow. I encourage you to get involved in your church. Get involved in a small group where there's some accountability. Human nature is to run from accountability. And you say, well, I don't, that's not for me. That's not my company. Don't, don't, you know, that, you know, give me a good, nice little Bible study, but that accountability stuff? Well, that's for somebody else over there. Why do people get music teachers? Accountability. Somebody's going to hear you next week. You want to be a good wrestler? Do you have a coach? Absolutely. If you're going to go anywhere, if you're going to do anything that means something, you need to have somebody on your team helping you and being honest with you. And finally, if you want prayer today, oh my. There'll be some wonderful people at the front. If you need prayer today, for whatever trouble you may be going through, maybe it's just for direction. Maybe it's you want to pray about something that you're struggling with somebody else. Sometimes, you know, people just irk us to no end. And we have a hard time forgiving them. Shoot, we have sometimes a hard time forgiving ourselves. There'll be people at the front. If the counselors will come on through the front, that God uh, can help you. And we'll have a time of invitation. You come as we sing together. As the Spirit leads, come on.